Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From another hot human Minnesota day and presumably a hot, humid South Carolina day. Bang the gavel. It's Election Shock Therapy, Supreme <laughs> Court Edition, Part 2. Yay. Right. Uh, that's right. If you were listening last week, you heard us begin to discuss some of the recent and really momentous Supreme Court cases that were announced uh, from this year's docket. And to kind of round out that discussion and to continue with some more other uh, recent releases from the court, uh, joining me today in this virtual studio are Andy Bramson, Matt Kukum, and Mitchell Crum. And Mitchell, thanks for joining us again from yeah. uh, University of South Carolina, Aiken. And uh, was I right? Is it a hot, humid day in South Carolina? It is very hot and uh, it is very humid. Yep, it is indeed. It's a very safe guess on July 1st. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, and this is really more for a um, 252 podcast uh, reference, but uh, for you baseball fans out there, happy Bobby Bonilla Day. If you, are any of you guys familiar with this? No. No. Explain for us. Let me give you my 60 seconds. And this is one of my favorite days on the, on the baseball sports calendar. Um, Bobby Bonilla has not played for the New York Mets since, I believe, oh, yeah. the year 2004. Um, however, uh, through weird contract machinations and um, a story involving, I kid you not, um, Bernie Madoff, uh, the Mets strung out his salary. So, so the Mets, okay. So the Mets lead, uh, uh, ownership thought they were making huge profits by investing a bunch of money in Bernie Madoff, and they thought that their money was going to be worth uh, even more in the future. So, rather than pay their play Bobby Bonilla, who is this aging all star. They stretched out his contract, I kid you not, until the year he was 72. Um, and so every year on July 1st, the Mets pay Bobby Bonilla $1.19 million. Oh and God. they will be doing this until he, in, uh, for a, until 2035. Yep. And so even though he has not played meaningful baseball in 15 years, he continues to draw a fairly substantial paycheck from the New York Mets. It's amazing, oh and I love it. Yeah, and, they're not, and we're not the only ones who do this. Like I noticed this with my team, the Braves, a few years back, where they still had like Bruce Sutter that they were paying. I was like, "What? When did he play?" It was like the eighties. Right? <laughs> paying him his contract because they'd done one of these weird, like, "We're gonna pay you less, but we'll pay you over more years," and it ended up being, of course, a lot more overall. Very strange. Yep, I, I love everything about this story. And you know what? When Bob, in 2035, when Bobby Bonilla turns 72, he will still be on the younger side for U.S. Supreme Court justices. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Oh. Or president. All right, guys. For that matter. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a whole life ahead of him. All right, guys. we got some, th some issues to work through today. Uh, Supreme Court issues, that is. So I'm going to just uh, get us rolling here. Uh, and we're going to start with cases related to immigration and to asylum seeking. And we're gonna start with the Department of Homeland Security versus University of California. Uh, Mitch, what's going on in this case? I think we might've lost Mitch there. So I, yeah, I've got a lot of, uh, can you guys hear me? 
Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Hear you. Okay, great. Uh, yes, okay, great. I, I had some distortion there. I'm sorry about that. It's the That's joy of Zoom. Yay for, or not, well, this isn't Zoom, but whatever. Uh, sorry for impugning <laughs> Zoom there. Um, <laughs> uh, at any rate, all right. So, yeah, so basically what's going on uh, in this case is uh, if you if you were to well let, okay let me start let me, I feel like I feel like in the Princess Bride where it's like let me start at the beginning no no let me sum up no let me go anyway. <laughs> so, if we rewind really far back let's mm-hmm. just basically think about this so immigration in this country uh, has not been significantly reformed since the 1970s and so our laws basically are still going back to to the priorities and ideals of the 1970s and essentially at that time the way immigration worked was uh, was basically a lot of uh, the, uh, the focus essentially was to try to bring families together um, and so a big part of, of the immigration laws essentially give priority to people who already have uh, family members who are citizens or residents of the United States um, another priority was to try to bring in people who have uh, particular skills and so our immigration system is stacked towards trying to welcome people who have particular uh, particular skills. And then there was also um, basically the, the system was designed to, to basically turn a blind eye to anybody who wanted to come and be a migrant worker um, mm-hmm. in the United States. Because basically the idea was there are a lot of people who want to come in, particularly from Mexico, who want to work. They don't want to live here. They don't want to be citizens. They just want to work and then they want to go back. And so there was this usual flow of millions of people who would come into the country, do a lot of work, especially you know hard manual jobs, and then leave. And immigration basically just would ignore them um, because you know they they were doing what they wanted to do and you know everybody was kind of okay with this and as time has progressed um, our situation has changed dramatically um, as you might imagine that was 50 years ago um, and so for better or worse our, 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 our immigration system hasn't really caught up and so one of the fallouts from that has been um, a lot of folks who have come here essentially ostensibly to work um, have also at times decided that they want to continue to reside here. And our immigration system is not particularly friendly to these people. Um, and again, now, whatever your political opinion is as far as how we ought to treat those people, it is it is the case that our immigration system wasn't really designed to accommodate that kind of activity. And yeah. so people, when they decided to go ahead and reside here, then um, faced a system that was really stacked against them. And basically what a lot of them decided to do was because the immigration system was sort of turning a blind eye to them to just stay and just kind of see what happened. And, and, and a lot of them uh, successfully did so. Um, and basically what, what also then is true is according to the 14th Amendment, anyone who is born on U.S. soil is automatically a citizen. And this goes back to essentially right. protecting particularly uh, the descendants uh, the descendants of enslaved peoples um, and making mm-hmm. sure that people who are in the United States are treated as uh, you know as full citizens and are not somehow uh, weaseled out of that. Um, and basically, uh, and, and, and at any rate, that's actually less relevant for what, for what we're talking about here, but, but, but that was one, um, that, that is something that's part of that. But basically what happens is if you come here and you are not born on the soil, but you are nonetheless a child, a lot of people have grown up essentially in the United States who are not actually, who, 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 who did not fall under that um, 14th Amendment rule because they were already born uh, shortly, either, some, a lot of times shortly before they were brought here. Right. So maybe you were three years old or five years old mm-hmm. or even, you know, 10 years old or something like that. And you were brought here by your parents and they lived here. Um, and basically you grew up. And for a lot of these folks who are in the situation, there's, varying estimates about exactly how many people are in this situation. I think the current 
registered number is somewhere in the vicinity of like 650,000, some, somewhere in there, somewhere between 650, maybe, maybe as many as 800,000, something like that. At any rate, it's a substantial number. It's, a huge, it's, a, it's an enormous number of people. Uh, and, uh, and basically the question is, should those people have some kind of extra access to citizenship, particularly since they've gone through American education, this is essentially the only country they've ever known, you know, if they were deported, it would be like, you know, somebody, uh, you know, it, yeah, it would just, it would just yeah. be, it would just be somebody who's always known this country just suddenly being told, hey, you now have to go to this place that you probably don't even know the language, um, right. yeah. and, and all that. So, um. So essentially, uh, pr uh, what happened then, coming forward, is uh, President Obama, and really even before President Obama, numerous people have tried to get this system changed, and have tried to update our immigration laws to reflect current realities, and they have generally failed because, as we talked about last time, our Congress doesn't really do very much. <laughs> so right. uh, our Congress has largely failed. But it's worth pointing out, and I'm going to interject here, Mitch, that okay. Congress might be uniquely disincentivized from changing immigration laws because immigration is not evenly distributed across the country. Yeah, right. And um, because population helps determine congressional apportionment, um, co uh, Congress itself might uniquely be penalized, or, or, or so there might be certain rewards and penalties for granting immigration within Congress right. itself. Right. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and so at any rate, President Obama for several years desperately tried to get Congress to update um, immigration systems. Congress didn't um, for various reasons, as Chris just noted. Um, there's a lot of incentives to not do that. And eventually what President Obama did was he went ahead and took key provisions of the immigration reform that he wanted and essentially put them in place as executive orders. And this is what's referred to as DACA, the Deferred, uh, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, let's see, the Deferred... Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. There we go, for Childhood Arrivals. Thank you. So, so essentially, he took he took uh, those and, and essentially enacted them through executive orders. And what uh, what is what basically then happened is, and as is often understood, is executive orders only have uh, uh, power while the current president uh, endorses them. Essentially, so right. the strength of executive orders is it allows the president to act unilaterally to basically do what they want, at least as far as they can get away with. You know, if the courts might push back if it violates standing law, which right. the courts already ruled on that and said that basically they didn't like, you know, they felt like some of what Obama did went too far, but they felt like most of it was probably still within his, still was still okay. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so at any rate, it allows, it allows unilateral action on the part of the president, but its weakness, the weakness of executive orders is, is at least as the way it's been understood, we'll talk about this here in a second, is that subsequent presidents can then pretty much overturn them at will. Right. Um, and now we're in the Trump administration. Now we're in the Trump administration. The Trump administration, through the Department of Homeland Security, has sought to essentially overturn DACA and, and basically mm -hmm. undo those executive orders. And right. that's the case that's been brought before the court here, is there are folks who are in the DACA program who, and, uh, and people who are surrounding them who have basically said that they believe that the Trump administration has, 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 has acted unlawfully. And on the surface, at least, it actually looks like a sort of a slam dunk for the Trump administration. Because, I mean, historically, the way executive orders have been understood and the way that executive orders have usually been treated is once, you know, executive orders only have power and standing if the president mm -hmm. wants them to have power and standing. And so if the Trump administration has now said, hey, these are executive orders, we're done with those, we're chucking them, 
um, sort of the knee-jerk reaction to that, you know, is kind of to say, well, you know, we may not like it, you know, and, and it may be unjust or whatever, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, whatever judgments you might want to put on it, but the president's the president, and that's the deal with executive orders. They get to do what they want. Um, so it's interesting about this case, and the reasoning in this case is that the court didn't say that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the court went against sort of our basic understanding of how executive orders work, and they actually said no, the Trump administration uh, could not simply overturn uh, uh, President Obama's executive order. Um, and without getting too deep into the weeds on this, I mean, basically the reason they said this was was that the Trump administration uh, had basically ended it without going through any kind of administrative uh, uh, processes to actually do so, right? So they basically right. hadn't gone through essential processes of vetting what they were going to do as figuring out the policies for how this would affect those who were under the program. They had just kind of said... And it's done, right? And the court said right. you can't do that. That actually is, um, you need to have a more systematic administrative process by which you um, uh, uh, actually end this program. Okay, so let me interject and pose to all three of you then. Is that a notable kind of ruling? Is it is it uh, unusual for the court to step in and say, you're within your legal rights to act, but your execution was, uh, Ill was, was uh, unconstitutional? Sometimes the court will um, use a um, a procedural ground for its ruling rather than a substantive one, right? Mm -hmm. So the court actually said that um, that the Trump administration, as Mitch pointed out, does have the authority to issue this sort of order, um, but tossed out the order because it didn't follow the follow the law, the Administrative Procedure Act, and the provisions that are laid out in that act. Um, so sometimes the court will do this. Um, sometimes it does that um, because it allows them to to not have to make a substantive um, sort of a substantive case for why they're doing what they're doing. They can just mm -hmm. sort of throw it out on a technicality. What's what's interesting here is that Obama's original executive orders also didn't go through and follow the law laid out in the Administrative Procedure Act. And so the Trump administration was basically saying like, hey, well, this the original executive orders didn't go through this procedure. And so we're basically just going to end the procedure or end this law without also going through the procedure. Um, but right. the court basically stepped in and in the 5-4 majority and Roberts writing the opinion for the majority basically said that um, that DACA was, um, that, that this executive order um, is in fact illegal because it doesn't follow this procedure. Um, even though the original order with DACA would have been illegal on the same grounds. Yeah, and I think that gets back to, I mean, in that sense, this is an unusual case. It's unusual yeah. that the court um, is essentially reigning in executive power, at least, I mean, again, it's it's a fairly, as, as Matt pointed out, I mean, this is a really narrow sort of like technicality type mm -hmm. thing here, but but it is very unusual for the for the court to, to rein in um, executive power in terms of the administration of the executive branch. Um, generally speaking, if there's not sort of like a rights claim or a very specific, mm -hmm. you know, constitutional provision um, or things like that, the court mostly tries to stay like hands off in terms of how the executive carries out um, their, you know, their 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 administration. And so, so this is so that, yeah, this this is a fairly unusual uh, circumstance, I think, um, and. 
one has to wonder, of course, if, you know, again, I think we talked last time about, you know, subjective reasoning and things like that. One yeah. has to wonder if uh, part of what swayed Roberts was simply the fact that, you know, it's very unclear what would happen to, you know, again, those 650,000 uh, people were this program just abruptly ended. And, um, you know, and so I think that that probably, it certainly, I mean, it obviously weighed in for some of the members on the majority. Um, you know, this was right. made very clear in, 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 in some of the, some of the uh, uh, opinions that were written, um, particularly by, I believe, K, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but if I remember, I think K, Kagan and Sotomayor both, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. specifically specifically address the pragmatic issue of what what happens to these people um and so yep. uh and so yeah so that's that that becomes uh certainly certainly probably part of the calculus right i mean the there's clearly a preferred sort of policy outcome right um and which you know makes sense and there's good reasons for that it's interesting though that um, sort of the legal reasoning um, by the part of the majority, right, who Roberts wrote that opinion, even though there's some sort of concurring <clears throat> opinions that lay out sort of the policy reasoning, but Roberts writes a very narrow opinion, which yep. he uses a very sort of technical rationale that allows him to achieve a certain policy goal. And that technical rationale is in fact true. Yes, this did violate the Administrative Procedure Act. It's particularly rich is that, of course, um, the whole thing was originally a violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. And so the idea is that the president should not be required or has to follow the Administrative Procedure Act to end a policy that is in violation of the law itself, right? So that's, but, but again, it's, it's sort of a narrow technical sort of ruling that allows the court to sidestep making a substantive dis decision while simultaneously achieving a substantive policy outcome that they want. Because so, in fact, because in fact, you know, Congress hasn't, you know, as Mitch pointed out, you know, done any sort of significant immigration reform for decades. Um, and because Obama basically tried to step in and sort of fill that void. And the court basically feels like, or the majority of the court feels like it doesn't want to intervene in that attempt. So if, if the court, I mean, or if, or if the Trump administration rather, you know, gets a second term and goes through the Administrative Procedure Act, should we expect a 5-4 decision the other way if this comes back up before the court do you think i mean how i mean assuming everybody stays the same i don't know <laughs> that's i think that's I, yeah i think it is hard to say although i think a lot of um at least from what i saw like a lot of advocacy groups on behalf of the the dreamers those who are uh, mm -hmm. protected by 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 daca uh are particularly worried about that um i think yeah. they perceive that this was this was essentially sort of i mean I think the way some are describing it is this is sort of like a stay of execution. Like, you know, this yep. was just a, yep. you know, this was a pause. Um, right. And, you know, I think sort of the implication to some degree too, I mean, again, it depends on how cynical we're going to be about the courts, but I do think this might have played a role too, is there's an election coming up. Yep. Who knows yep. what, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen in, in, uh, in a few months. And the court may be sort of crossing their fingers and hoping that this, this isn't an issue. I mean, because it reminds me a little bit of the Obamacare ruling eight years ago, right? Right. When Roberts did something very similar, and and that time kind of explicitly said, right, like if you want to change this kind of thing, you need to go through electoral processes, right? Yep. I mean, yep. um, this is the kind of thing you overturn by voting in somebody different, um, but not that we're gonna we're not gonna kind of throw it out um, just based on this this commerce or you know this you can't create commerce argument, right? So, yeah. Um, 
you know, it, it does feel like a kind of similar logic. And in some ways, I mean, I wonder if even there's some similarities with the abortion ruling, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, in the way that he's, he's thinking about his role in the court. Yep, yep, absolutely. Andy, as you think, I'll throw this into the other lane for a second. As you think about electoral politics, would you expect the Trump administration, which has already shown a real willingness to use immigration and to use uh, uh, racial dog whistles as part of their electoral strategy, right. will ending the DACA program, uh, it, uh, basically overcoming this obstacle of the court, become an electoral issue for Trump? Does I this play be, well? I wouldn't be surprised, in, at least in some places, right? I mean, like, you know, if you're thinking about kind of more targeted appeals, yeah, I think in in some of his constituencies, this could be a good targeted appeal. And it certainly sounds like the kind of thing the president might like to talk about his, his rallies. I mean, it's it fits with his, you know, some of the themes he's liked to pound on in the past. So I wouldn't be surprised yeah. to see it. Um, whether it plays well on a grand scale, I'm less convinced. I mean, mm-hmm. um, anytime you're running against children who are essentially American, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, that's a risky strategy. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's not like this is some sort of open borders policy, right? No, this is like people who are brought here without any say who are right. being given, you know, some right. reasonable legal protections, maybe right. through a sort of a dubious method, right? Um, yeah. Depending on how you view Obama's executive orders, um, yeah. but protections yeah. that most Americans are probably fine with them having, right? Right. Um, it's also not entirely clear um, how opposed. Trump is necessarily to this because there was at one point when there was an attempt at immigration reform earlier in his administration, there was the possibility that he was going to float sort of sort of trading, you know, protections for the dreamers in exchange for um, some, some other sorts of immigration policies that yeah. he like yeah. more sort of, you know, board, you know, funding for the border wall and, and that sort of thing. Um, and there was indication that he was actually putting the dreamers sort of thing on the table, but the Democrats mm-hmm. rejected that because um, they wanted sort of a wholesale sort of immigration reform that had all the sort of policy planks that they wanted. And Trump also with his base, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of appetite for giving the dreamers, um, you know, those protections amongst, you know, right. some of his base as well. And so the whole thing basically didn't go anywhere. Kind of like how all of the previous attempts at immigration reform in, in the past generation have fallen flat as well. Right. 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 Well, let's, let's take, we have one more, uh, immigration legal status issue to deal with, and that is also DHS, uh, in this case, DHS versus Thuria Sigium, I believe. Um, but uh, what is the issue about asylum seeking uh, that came before the court? Matt, you want to lead us through this one? Yeah, sure. So this was um, probably not a really big case. It was actually a 7-2 decision. Um, basically, the court upheld um, a government policy in which unauthorized immigrants seeking asylum can be deported under an expedited removal process that was established back in 1996 under the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Um, <laughs> I had to have that written down because there's no way I would have remembered that. But, but basically, <laughs> um, what, what you have um, is so in the what you have is a ruling which basically said that um, non-citizens do not have a constitutional right to challenge expedited removal orders. They are only entitled to the administrative process that is provided by by the law. Um, they actually don't have standing to sue um, the government um, for not protecting the rights of citizens. So basically what the law does is it says, hey, we have all of these people coming seeking asylum and the federal um, 
judicial system can't actually handle every single one of these cases, right? You can't have, we don't have enough federal judges in existence to basically have a individualized hearing for every single person that comes seeking asylum. So what we have is a sort of pre-screening process in which you have these officials that are, you know, employed by the Department of Justice, um, basically do an initial screening to see if the asylum cases have merit. And if they do have merit, then they send the case along to a federal judge, in which case the, the asylum seeker gets his or her day in court, in federal court. Um, and so it's just a pre-screening process to rule out sort of cases that clearly don't fit um, the guidelines set out uh, by U.S. law on asylum seekers. And asylum seekers don't have any standing to sue saying that that law is somehow unfair or unconstitutional. Um, this is a, the process itself, this law itself is a perfectly sort of valid and constitutional provision. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it's not a violation of rights necessarily. So basically it's, it's, it's um, a, a pretty, as I understand it, it's not a complicated case. Um, it's basically just saying that, you know, the process that we have right now is, is, is essentially fine. Cool. So let me ask then, it, it's kind of striking to me that you, this, this looks like it's pretty open and shut, right? Um, asylum seekers are not citizens, so they don't have legal status as a citizen would. Um, what were the two people who, who dissented from the majority? What was their, what were they arguing? Do we have a sense of what the counter argument is here? So the counter argument, I think, hinges on this idea that um, it, it's, it, it basically boils down to what do you think are the extent of rights? Right. Um, do you think uh, essentially <clears throat> that rights protections apply to all people or do you think they only apply to um, people who are uh, either citizens or who have some kind of status um, within the U.S. system? And if you think that, uh, you know, that essentially rights apply to all people, that these are essentially universal protections, um, then basically dismissing people's asylum claims through uh, a proceeding that otherwise would not pass muster um, for other sorts of like rights claims um, is invalid. And so that's essentially the argument is to say that, uh, you know, that and, and especially I think I think the one the one thing that also gives us a little bit more bite too. Uh, is that you know there are fairly strong uh, asylum protections in, uh, in, in essentially in international law, and so part of the argument is that basically the United States in using these procedures is essentially ignoring important provisions of international mm -hmm. law with regard to to asylum seekers. Um, and so between those two things, right, your view of the universality versus the particularness of rights, um, and your view of how uh, you know, essentially, essentially, whether you whether you feel the U.S. should should adhere strongly to those protections for asylum seekers, then uh, you know, then essentially these procedures become uh, more questionable. So that's the that's that's essentially the 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 counter argument. Obviously, that was only persuasive to to a couple of justices on the court, um, but nonetheless, that's the that's the uh, rejoinder. Yeah, and it's worth noting, I mean, you do see the ideological divide in the court in this one, um, in the sense that, so it was seven to two, and you, but you get the five conservative justices basically joining a strongly worded, you know, statement of support. You have two justices on the left, um, Sotomayor and Kagan, who dissented, and then the other two justices who are more on the left, Ginsburg and Breyer, agreed with the decision but thought that it should be kind of framed more narrowly right so like mm -hmm. like this decision was right but we shouldn't go beyond that to kind of affirm 
this general approach necessarily, right? And so there, um, so I think there is that concern about you know how do how do you think about the rights, right? And how far how far should mm -hmm. that? All right, then, guys. I think we need to move on. I think we need to uh, patch into um, and our next big topic. And I should mention that if this was, I feel like this is a pretty momentous court year. If this was uh, a, a normal court, the two cases we just discussed might be sort of the, the big headline from the court's decisions. But we also have rulings on religious liberty and on abortion. So let's start with abortion. And this is a fairly narrow ruling, but anytime abor abortion becomes a, a topic, it becomes a very heated debate. So what did uh, uh, what did the court find about doctors in Louisiana? Uh, so as far as as far as as far as this case goes, uh, what Louisiana had, had had essentially done was they passed a law that said that doctors who perform abortions need to have what are referred to as admitting privileges um, to a nearby hospital. And essentially, uh, what that means is you have to have the ability to to basically officially put patients in the hospital and then treat them inside the hospital. So you have to be um, essentially have the status of being a doctor in that hospital. Um, now, what's what's uh, and 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 so and so the argument in favor of, of of these laws that was given by the Louisiana legislature was that this was intended to um, increase safety for uh, essentially for for. Uh, for those undergoing uh, abortion procedures. And so the idea behind, you know, so this, the stated reason behind the law is that this is basically a safety measure. This is to make mm -hmm. sure that, that, you know, if there, if something goes wrong with the, with the, with the abortion procedure, they can quickly and easily get to a hospital and have um, proper treatment. Right. Um, now the, uh, the issue here, and part of the reason why this case is, uh, is uh, in some ways, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think you're right, Chris. I mean, in some ways, if you look at sort of the slate of issues that have come before the court and that are, in fact, still pending even before the court, there's a couple other, right. there's several other momentous cases that actually the court has still not ruled on. But, uh, but in some ways, this case is, in one sense, a little more open and shut because a very similar law was passed in Texas and mm -hmm. the court ruled on that in 2016. And essentially the court in 2016 mm -hmm. said that this rule, uh, you know, this kind of admitting privileges rule was not, uh, mm -hmm. did not, was not permissible. And I don't know, we can parse the reasons for that, but basically the reasons the court gave in 2016 uh, was that in, uh, in, in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the guiding precedent on abortion, which uh, the Casey case goes back to is, uh, it's from 1992. Um, the court said that you cannot have, you know, basically quote unquote, a substantial burden, um, based, uh, placed on, on women seeking abortions. And so in 2016, the court said that, that requiring doctors to have admitting privileges placed a substantial burden. Um, and it's for this reason, basically, let me sort of like describe why this might be a burden. Um, some, when essentially doctors who perform abortions, uh, oftentimes, basically, usually don't have admitting pr privileges to hospitals um, because those are actually difficult to get. Mm -hmm. And because it's difficult to get uh, admitting privileges, in fact, part of the reason, you know, part of the reason it's difficult is that most hospitals, in order for you to have admitting privileges, you have to have performed a certain quota of procedures in a hospital within a given year. Um, and so if you haven't, you know, done X number of procedures, then you don't get admitting privileges. And a lot of these uh, doctors who work in, in abortion clinics, basically their work, obviously, because they're in abortion clinics, is in the clinic. It's not mm -hmm. in, uh, it's not in, it's not in, it's not in the hospital. And so they've obviously just 
you know, just by virtue of what they're doing, are going to fail to meet that threshold of uh, procedures. And so, um, Mitch, can I ask a quick question? Yeah, go for it. Is there any sense that the behavior of the hospitals might have been prejudicial towards uh, doctors who are performing abortions, and essentially hospitals themselves are selecting out abortion clinic doctors, or is, or so, is this simply a matter of of, of um, meeting the standard of number of procedures in the, in the hospital? It, it's mostly just meeting the standards. Um, okay. It's basically just you know our our and, and some of the hospitals too have requirements like. Um, in one case, I think that, that, the, uh, that the courts looked at was there was this long stretch of, uh, of, like, of, like, of like procedures you had to go through, like testing you had to do mm-hmm. and all kinds of sort of like hoops you had to jump through that would take like six months. And the doctor in that case was basically had said they didn't have time to do it. Like they were like, mm-hmm. I, have, I have a day job. I don't have time to jump through these like six months of hoops. Um, yeah. to do and this. interject very briefly on that. Yeah. Some hospitals in response to these laws have actually loosened their admission privileges, basically to make it easier for the abortion doctors to be compliant with the law. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, so yeah, so at any rate, uh, at any rate, well, so what, so, so essentially what the court ruled in 2016 was that this law, because it basically meant that um, a lot of doctors would therefore not be able to perform uh, abortions, therefore this would this would close down a lot of uh, basically basically prevent a lot of a lot of doctors from being able to carry out these procedures. Um, uh, and that would create the undue burden in Casey. Undue burden from Casey, exactly. Okay. Um, now there are uh, essentially sort of like th- if I can just sort of like note three three interesting things here and then I'll and then I'll be quiet and <laughs> set aside here. Um, the first interesting thing about this is that uh, uh, is 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 essentially that Justice Roberts um, actually disagreed with the opinion in 2016. So mm-hmm. Justice Roberts uh, felt that the opinion in 2016 was incorrect, that it wrongly applied, uh, that in fact that it got Casey itself wrong. So Justice Roberts has argued that they got Casey wrong, and Justice Roberts has also expressed some reservations about Casey itself. Um, in fact, in the decision um, that that was you know that's 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 actually before the court right now, the June Medical Services case that we're talking about right now, um, Justice Roberts again reiterated some. Uh, questions and, and concerns he had about Casey itself. But nonetheless, um, what's interesting here is that even though Justice Roberts disagreed with that original decision, he felt that stare decisis compelled him um, to uphold this particular law. And I'm sure we'll want to come back to that here in a moment. So that's the first interesting thing. Um, the second thing uh, is essentially that this case is because uh, because, it's because, because of the way that it's been decided, um, really does come down to how you think about Casey, right? And I think mm-hmm. we'll probably want to talk a little bit about the nature of, of what Casey decided and things like that, um, because uh, essentially, essentially that case um, basically set out the standard that you can't have a substantial burden. But if you read this case and you read the different opinions, the real linchpin um, in many of these dissents and concurrences and the opinions in this particular case is what is a quote unquote substantial burden? What is what is that what does that term mean? Um, and you get some starkly different interpretations of what that of what that phrase means. So and then finally, um, this case is actually probably um, you know on, on the one hand this you know this case is fairly momentous. On the other hand. Um, in some ways, it's really not, um, because it basically goes along with what the court has already said. In some ways, this is the court saying, yeah. in fact, it's not even sort of this. I mean, the court has all but explicitly said, hey, 
quit bringing cases that are identical to <laughs> from things yeah. we've done in the yeah. past to us. I yeah. mean, you know, and actually that's kind of the same thing they're doing in Espinosa too. Mm -hmm. um, the court in both of these cases has kind of said, hey, quit bringing identical things to us. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But, um, uh, and so in that way, what's more interesting is to think about what's going to be, what, what might happen with upcoming uh, abortion legislation or abortion litigation. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on underneath the surface. Um, so it's not a surprising outcome. Um, if you sort of look at the oral arguments and sort of the positions Roberts was taking and you look at sort of the, you know, how the, the court ruled in the Texas case um, and, you know, regarding the Texas law and basically tossed it out. Louisiana law was virtually identical. Like it's, it's totally not surprising, uh, but it's interesting sort of once you get beneath the surface to look at what's going on and maybe just to pick up a little bit on uh, some of the things Mitch was saying. It's interesting that sort of if you look at the Casey decision, um, in the Casey decision, you get this a particular type of test, you know, does a law place sort of an undue sort of a burden on a woman's right to obtain an abortion? That's, of course, how you interpret, you know, undue burden, you know, is like, I mean, it's a, it's a vague, <laughs> it's a really vague um, test, right? And you can interpret it in different ways. What you've seen um, and you began to see this in the the previous case, the Texas case, um, the, which we will call the whole women's health case. What you saw is Justice Breyer, who wrote the uh, majority opinion in that case. Um, he proposes or he sort of wants to modify sort of the Casey test or he sort of reimagines or reinterprets the Casey test, moving away from a sort of undue burden test to a burdens versus benefits test. So what are the burdens? Um, on sort of on women versus sort of one of the benefits. Um, and basically, it's a modification of Casey. Now, Roberts, uh, who signed on to the dissenting opinion of the whole women's health case, basically said that that he rejected the Breyer balancing test, saying we need to only stick sort of with the original Casey precedent. Um, he actually said that um, it is not within uh, the court's capacity to actually weigh benefits versus burdens. That's not within the capacity of the judiciary. He said that in his dissent. And he stuck by in the majority or his own sort of opinion um, in the Louisiana case. He basically reiterates that is still his position. Um, but he still, interestingly, upholds, um, upholds uh, the women's health case thus striking down the Louisiana law. Um, and Gorsuch, in his dissenting opinion, sort of takes him to task, saying basically, um, you know, taking Roberts to task for basically saying that the court is bound to follow a bad precedent. It's like, hey, you disagree with the precedent here, um, and now you're just saying, well, the court is, is, is bound to follow a bad precedent. Now, what makes this difficult is that Roberts is using a selective application of stare decisis. So he's using stare decisis to say like, hey, we're upholding sort of a previous court ruling with which I disagreed. We're upholding a previous court ruling, therefore we're striking down Louisiana law. But there's other ways in which the decision that he's a part of actually sort of cuts against stare decisis. So one example is um, that um, Roberts, in ruling with the progressive justices to form a 5-4 a majority, 
um, cuts against older and probably stronger Supreme Court precedents on other matters. Um, one of these is what is called third party standing. I'm sorry, we're getting to the weeds here. Now, third party standing has to do with the right of a third party to sue on behalf of some other party. Um, arguing that their rights have been violated. So here the suit is actually brought not by, so unlike the 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 Texas case, the whole women's health case, um, in which you have an actual sort of um, a plaintiff saying, I can't get a real, you know, you know, proper access to an abortion, my rights being violated. What you have in Louisiana case is you have abortion providers sort of suing on behalf of sort of potential, potential abortion clients. seekers, right? Yeah. Um, and basically, there's Supreme Court precedent that says that you that third parties don't have a standing, not only in abortion cases, but in a wide variety of other sorts of cases as well. Um, abortion providers cannot sue on behalf of abortion service recipients. And moreover, because Roe, uh, Roe and Casey basically all they do is they establish a right to receive an abortion and not a right for a provider to provide a, an abortion, yeah. right? So so there, so you have, you know, these precedents, basically, the third party standing precedent, which applies to other sorts of um, other sorts of rights, rights cases, um, basically um, being thrown out, right, with hardly an explanation. Um, and so it's interesting to me that Roberts will will selectively apply stare decisis to achieve sort of um, a certain outcome um, and then not apply stare decisis in regards to other sorts of judicial proceedings. And I, I could say more about, about um, you know, third party standing and then um, and rescue judica um, and sorry decisis, but I'll just sort of leave it at that um, for them. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I mean, what, what Matt's set out, I think, is um, you know, this is this is articulated at length, obviously, by um, the dissenting justices, particularly in in this case. Um, and you know, it is it is curious in some ways that the court. Um, is allow is allowing uh, you know some malleability on 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 the standing issue. Although I will say, I mean, one of the things that's interesting that's always tricky about the Supreme Court is this issue of standing. Um, yeah. You know, if you are if you want to again, if you want to get into the weeds on a lot of cases, standing is almost always contested. In fact, if we yeah. you know if we can look at that in Espinosa too. There's a question of whether um, you know folks even still had standing to bring the case, uh, you know, that religious liberty case to the court. Um, and in right. some ways, you know, again, we talk about sort of the malleability of the law. Um, standing is always one of those areas where the court sometimes kind of, you know, decides that they want to fudge around the edges. And, you know, right. this is sort of a longstanding <laughs> thing where they, you know. Um, but I think one other thing just to note, as far as stare decisis goes, I mean, just, just to think about Roberts for a second. I think Roberts, um, I think there are several things going on. I think the cynical read on Roberts is that he is essentially trying to sort of enhance his own power by being the swing justice. Um, and, uh, you know, that basically Roberts has sort of positioned himself in, in the ideological center of the court so that he gets to be the deciding vote. And, of course, his extra power as chief justice is if the chief justice is in the majority, he gets to decide who writes the opinion, including perhaps assigning it to himself. Um, yeah. And so Roberts uh, arguably has been the most powerful chief justice in this term. Um, I th some people were quoting until like since 1937 like, or something like that. He's had the most control over the most cases. Um, for, so, so he's very powerful in this position right now. That's sort of the cynical read, I think. 
I think the less cynical read on Roberts and what he's doing and what he's thinking about with Starry Decisis here is that he he is two things. First of all, Roberts really wants to depoliticize the court. In other words, if there is a way to do something that will lessen sort of the political controversy um, surrounding the court, Roberts will almost always take that route. Um, he is somebody who is really trying to sort of remove the court from these kinds of things. Now, one might argue, of course, he's not being successful here because this is just going to make people who who right. are in favor, you know, who who basically who, who want to end abortion more angry, right. um, and things like that. But but I think you can see a pretty clear line of reasoning to say, look there's an obvious case where the court already litigated an identical thing. The, the least political thing to do is not just immediately turn around like two years later and overturn that precedent. It's to just let that go. And then I think the other thing to think about with Roberts too is Roberts, and he basically says this in his, in his concurring opinion. Um, you know, Roberts is somebody who wants things to move a little bit more slowly and incrementally. And what he sets out in his dissent is basically saying, what I'd really like to see is people not so much trying to directly set up new regulations. He said, what I'd like people to do is to start thinking about new ways to interpret or even um, question Casey itself. Um, and Roberts really is kind of setting out several ideas about like what's wrong or right about Casey and, and how to think about that. And, he's, and he basically says the litigants in this case didn't even think about that. And so for Roberts, I think he felt like, at least what I draw from his, from his opinion anyway, is that he didn't want to sort of turn around and say, even though the lawyers never really made this argument against Casey or against this understanding of Casey, I'm now on my own just going to step out and say, we're going to reimagine Casey, right, and, and do this yeah. when that wasn't really the argument at, at issue in the, in, in the case. And so Roberts, I think, in some ways is sort of chastising um, I don't know. I guess we could call them the legislatures, but it's also the activists um, in this case who are trying to um, restrict abortion access um, and say, this is not the way to do it. Um, if you want me to listen to you, you're going to have to do it um, in more incremental and in even more fundamental ways in some ways, right? You're going to have to actually think right. about Casey, think about Roe um, itself. Well, it's not really clear to me that, I mean, I don't know. There's there's different ways to interpret Roberts on how he views Casey. Um, so one interpretation is that he's you know willing to entertain, um, willing to entertain challenges to it in the future. I don't read it that way. One because he's rejecting Breyer's reinterpretation of Casey mm -hmm. and seems to want to maintain it. Secondly, he wants to, he is intensely interested in applying stare decisis to basically preserve a case which he fundamentally disagreed with originally, right? Um, and to preserve basically abortion rights without, um, and to sort of bat down attempts to, to, veer, to, to severely restrict them. Um, so, as I see it, you know, he's willing to uphold what he sees to be, you know, a bad precedent in women's health. And that bad precedent in women's health is really small potatoes compared to the precedent of Casey and Roe. And as we know, he's very interested in sort of not, in sort of not, you know, over, you know, bucking the train, so to speak, you know, turning over precedent. And Casey and Roe are shy gigantic precedents. Mm -hmm. um, and even if he has some sort of fundamental disagreement with them, I don't see him necessarily wanting to see wanting to see them overturned in their well, near future. 
Well, maybe not in the near future. Um, I or think, even the in intermediate term. <laughs> I, think, I think the way to think about Roberts, though, and I think this is what he means when he's talking about stare decisis, and, and I think he's thinking about this history with the court as well. I mean, if we think about, you know, decisive, enormous changes in the court. I mean, if we think about, you know, oftentimes, I mean, the classic case, of course, is, is Brown versus Board of Education that overturns Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, but in order to get there, I mean, there were numerous cases along the way where, where essentially cases were brought before the court to try to directly challenge Plessy. Um, and the court generally didn't act on those. Um, instead, what they would act on were various cases that basically tried to establish, well, is this particular thing actually equal? Is this law school mm. actually equal? Is this particular um, facility actually equal? And the court built up a series of precedents over the long term that where they finally, um, in Brown versus Board, said, actually, given all these precedents of cases where it's not equal, it can never be equal, and, and actually equality is questioned by segregation. Anyway, not to get into Brown, but... But I think that's basically what Roberts has in mind. I think Roberts thinks of himself and the legacy of the court is basically in those same lines, where he's going to say, I'm not going to overturn, even if I think it's a bad precedent, right? If, you know, if Roberts during the civil rights era, I think we would imagine Roberts being one of these justices who would say, yeah, I think Plessy's a bad precedent, but I'm going to uphold it until we get a series of precedents that I'm ready to overturn. I'm not ready to just directly challenge standing precedent in that way. So I think that's what Roberts is kind of getting at in his dissent. That's how I read his dissent, where he's saying, what I want to see are cases that reimagine or that argue about what is this substantial burden precedent, you know, what is what is that phrase substantial burden mean in Casey? And I think what he's looking for are cases, and because I do think Roberts wants to restrict abortion rights. I mean, I think I, I think I think I, I think uh, Roberts has definitely indicated that, and in fact, I think he's clearly stated that both back in 2016, and then I think that's also in his dissent now. He he wants to restrict abortion rights, but he wants to do it in a way that's this very incremental thing that that basically goes back to these major precedents and reimagines them. Um, and so I think for Roberts, his ideal scenario is you build up precedents over time that sort of constrict, 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 constrict what means to be a substantial burden until it's virtually meaningless. And then you overturn Casey and say, given the preponderance of all of these precedents that have built up, this whole substantial burden. There is burden no substantial thing, burden. There is no substantial burden. It's no such thing anymore. We're done with Casey. Here's a new precedent that overturns Roe and Casey and all that. So I think that's Roberts's view of stare decisis, right? Where you have this very slow incremental thing. And anytime somebody tries to go further than that, right, or faster than that, he's going to basically pump the brakes and be like, nope, we're not, we're not doing that. And that's what I see him doing here. And so you're, yeah. go ahead. I was just gonna say, yeah, I, I think that's one way to interpret him. Um, I, I kind of disagree. Uh, I think, you know, that in some ways he would like to, he would, you know, is fine with some restrictions and maybe would entertain them in the future. Um, but, um, but, you know, given sort of that abortion, you know, it has been a longstanding thing here in the United States. Um, and there has been a body of, you know, Supreme Court rulings that, you know, have allowed some restrictions, but still nonetheless, um, you know, have further entrenched abortion right within American jurisprudence. I would be I would be utterly shocked if a Roberts court, um, as long as Roberts is the swing justice, will ever um, find a way to um, to completely overhaul Casey um, and and do what you described, Nick. But well, that's just that's just my reading. So, <laughs> let me take uh, this thesis, Mitch, that you've got working here, which is that 
Roberts is looking for incremental ways to keep the court apolitical while perhaps setting up a preponderance of decisions that allow him to make sort of larger decisions rather than rather than confronting them head on. Let's talk about Espinoza. It's been mentioned a couple of times yep. now. Um, what's the nature of the religious liberty question at stake in Espinoza here? Matt, did you want to start or do you want me to? <laughs> um, yeah, sure, I can start. So, so in Espinoza, um, basically, you have um, Roberts joining the four conservative justices. Um, and Roberts writes the majority opinion. Um, and Roberts um, is a guy who tends to favor in uh, rule in favor of protecting religious liberty. Um, and so the particular outcome here is is not really that surprising. Um, it's a sort of a weird, messy ruling. Um, so Roberts writes the majority opinion, which is joined by the four conservative justices. Thomas writes a concurrence joined by Gorsuch, basically doing some weird stuff with saying that we should not apply the First Amendment uh, to the states, or we should sort of unincorporate the Establishment Clause. We can discuss that later if we have time. Alito <laughs> writes a concurrence in which he really goes after um, sort of the sort of type of provision that you see in the Montana um, Constitution. Um, he really goes after the, sort of the anti-Catholic bigotry, so he really just, he's on fire. Um, Gorsuch <laughs> writes his own concurrence, Ginsburg writes a dissent joined by Kagan. Breyer writes a dissent only partly joined by Kagan. And Sotomayor writes her own dissent. So we have seven so different things. Everybody's angry. <laughs> yeah, all sorts of crazy stuff going on. But I mean, the, the upshot is um, is that um, as Robert writes, you know, a state does not have to subsidize um, does not have to subsidize private education. But when the state does decide to subsidize private education, uh, it cannot disqualify some private schools. Uh, because they are religious. So basically what you the background to this is in 2015 uh, Montana set up a scholarship program. Um, the residents who basically donate to the scholarship fund can receive $150 tax credit. And this money in this program is awarded to families who can use um, this scholarship to help defray the cost of a private education. Um, and basically what you have is you have a family in which they send their kids, you know, they're going to a public school, they pull them out. Um, and they send in the private school and they want to apply this um, uh, scholarship money to the private school of their choice, which happens to be a non-denominational Christian uh, Christian school. Um, now, um, Montana, um, like many other states, has a provision in the Constitution uh, that basically uh, stipulates um, that, um, that state funds cannot go towards... Um, cannot be used for religious institutions, cannot be sent to religious institutions, right? right, right. Um, and this is part of a very sort of um, long history of states adopting um, these sorts of amendments into their constitutions. So the, the history here is that uh, way back um, during the Grant presidency, so way back, um, Grant basically floats this idea of like, hey, we should have a really strict separation of church and state um, and we should amend the U.S. Constitution to basically mandate free public education and to stipulate that public monies will not go towards um, um, sectarian schools, towards religious schools. This was at the height of sort of anti-Catholic sort of um, bigotry in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
Now, the attempt by uh, Representative James G. Blaine to amend the U.S. Constitution um, with this provision didn't go anywhere, but a lot of states took up this um, took up this idea, um, and 37 states total basically included this sort of provision, you know, a so-called Blaine Amendment, in their constitutions uh, to basically prevent um, state funds go to, to go towards these religious institutions. Now, interestingly, a lot of states that have these amendments will just straight up still give public money to, um, you know, to scholarship programs, which can be applied to um, religious schools. So they're they're so, ignoring the law or? In a lot of cases, yeah, they're, they're just not sort of applying those provisions in their constitution or they're reading them in creative ways to sort of get around it. Anyway, so the Montana Supreme Court, um, you know, ultimately gets this case and the Montana Supreme Court basically decides like, okay, we're caught in a weird position, right? So we have the First Amendment, which basically has the free exercise clause in it, which says that, you know, you basically the government can't um, sort of place sort of a, a burden on um, the free exercise of religion. And so we know that if we um, sort of if we prevent the application or prevent the use of this money for the use in religious schools, we're going to run afoul of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, but we also know that the that the Montana Constitution says that we can't give this money to, it can't be used for religious schools. So what are we going to do? We're going to toss out the whole dang program. So basically, they, they axed the whole scholarship program altogether, threw the whole thing out. Um, and basically saying, well, now that we've thrown out the whole program, there's no discrimination anymore. Um, and so, as Kagan sort of pointed <laughs> out, like, well, this means the whole thing's moot. We can sort of move on. We have um, to burn this village to save it. Yeah, so <laughs> pretty much. Um, so, so Roberts basically goes in and he says, hey, look, the discriminatory, a discriminatory constitutional provision cannot be fixed or made non-discriminatory by a sort of non-discriminatory remedy of axing the whole program. He's like, the provision itself is discriminatory and is problematic um, on sort of First Amendment uh, free exercise grounds. Yeah. Um, and so basically, you know, he delves into the history of state funding for religious schools and says, in fact, the U.S. Has, and, and the federal and the state levels has a long history of supporting supporting these, um, you know, the state funding for religious institutions. Um, states have sometimes actually ignored their own constitutions in applying, you know, state funds to um, letting it be applied to religious institutions. And he basically says that you can't, if you're applying sort of standard, you know, First Amendment jurisprudence, you can't single out religious status um, for sort of inferior treatment. Um, and I, I could say more about the other cases that he references, but um, maybe someone else wants to jump in at this point. No, I think that's a good, I, I think that's a good uh, summary of, of what's going on there. I think, you know, um, I, I think it does get back to, and you mentioned this, you know, some of the squishiness that comes in sometimes with uh, the issues of like standing and mootness and things like that. I mean, you know, once again, in this, in this case, we have the role sort of reversed instead of the conservative justices arguing this case shouldn't come before the court. Uh, or sorry, instead of the liberal justices arguing this case shouldn't come before the court like uh, like we have uh, in uh, in the in 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 uh, in 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 the abortion case uh, in this case or uh, or, uh, or sorry, <laughs> I'm getting everything back up. You get what I mean, right? So basically, this in this in this case we have we have the uh, in this case we have the liberals arguing that this case shouldn't come here because it's moot. But at any yeah. rate, um, when we look at um, when we look at this case, I think there. are 
there, there are a number of interesting things going on. Yeah. One of them is that uh, once again, just like I said with the uh, with the June medical services, the abortion case that we just um, talked about, we have the court kind of saying we already litigated this. Right. <laughs> we litigated something very, very similar just in 2017, which is um, which is the case that's referred to as Trinity Lutheran. Um, and in the Trinity Lutheran case, essentially. Uh, um, Missouri <laughs> uh, had set up a law where basically they were going to provide um, a grant, just you know, funds to any school that want, or any school, and I think any like public entity that had a playground. Like basically, if you have a playground, you could you could the state was basically going to give you a grant to put down like rubberized you know bouncy pads or whatever, so that you yes. so that kids wouldn't get hurt. <laughs> so nice. So very very lovely. So so they're basically trying. <laughs> so this is like a public safety thing to keep kids from like scraping up their knees on playgrounds. Um, but then uh, the state had denied funding to a religious school, to Trinity Lutheran, um, mm, when they applied okay. for a grant to, to rubberize their playground on the same sort of religious grounds, right? That basically this was a religious school. They didn't want to provide tax dollars to a religious institution, um, et cetera. And the court in that case, in Trinity Lutheran, very clearly uh, stated that you cannot discriminate against religious institutions if you're providing an otherwise public good, right? So if there's something that's out there, if there's some kind of money out there to be given for something, you can't discriminate against a religious institution. And this case looks very similar, where once again, you have money that's out there for a public good. In this case, it's scholarships for uh, kids going to private schools. You can't, and the court is once again saying you can't discriminate against religious institutions when you have public money out there. Um, so once again, uh, the court is kind of saying, we just decided this. Um, we're, you know, you know, this is sort of me being pejorative, but it's sort of like, stop bringing us the same case, right? You know, so, you know, um, so cause, cause it's, cause it looks very similar in some, in, in, in some of those ways. Um, but there's two other things that I just kind of want to know. I mean, one of them is, um, that aside from the similarities to Trinity Lutheran, the reason this case and the reason all religion cases are so fraught, and in fact, I think uh, Justice Roberts actually said there's a lot of, as he says, quote unquote, like play in the joints <laughs> between mm. the two religion clauses in in in, uh, in the First Amendment. So the first part of the of so the First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting mm -hmm. the free exercise thereof, right? And so it's right. usually interpreted as two different clauses. You've got the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And the Establishment Clause is usually as has been interpreted to say that basically government shouldn't uh, support any religion, any particular religion. Um, and uh, there's a lot of disagreement within this case, which maybe we'll talk about, about what that Establishment Clause means. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but basically the idea is that they the way that this has been often understood is that there's a tension between those two. That on the one hand, you don't want, the free exercise clause says you shouldn't discriminate against religion. People should be able to practice and believe whatever they want to practice and believe um, within certain limits. Um, but then on the other hand, you don't want government to be endorsing religion and especially a particular religion. Right. And so, and so the argument has been that, uh, you know, that, that, that basically providing scholarships or providing you know, grant money to rubberize a playground maybe constitutes an establishment of religion in that sense. And the court has already ruled, obviously, in Trinity Lutheran that there's not an establishment of religion problem here. And so this, that makes it a free exercise problem. And if it's a free exercise problem, then you can't discriminate against religions, which is where the court came down. But here's, here's where I'm going with that. Um, sorry, I know I'm going on too long here, but 
the guiding precedent for the establishment clause, at least in principle, is Lemon versus Crutzman. <laughs> okay. I did a little, I, 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 I kind of read through the decision and I was looking specifically for Lemon and I didn't find it because I probably read too fast. And so I just used my little Google search uh, function to try to find it. It's referenced once. And that really? is in Justice Thomas's uh, 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 concurrence. And basically, Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas describes it as the, quote unquote, the infamous lemon case. <laughs> and so I was like, this is the guiding precedent for establishment clause cases. And it is the only mention it gets in this case is as the infamous lemon. And I was like, that says something about like hmm. the status that lemon has right now. Like even, even the people who are arguing against it, right? So even the dissenters in this case aren't referring back to lemon, which is, which is just fascinating, I think, in, in and of itself. Um, and so what the, lemon t what, what the lemon case essentially establishes for establishment clause purposes is um, for a law to satisfy the establishment clause according to the lemon test, it has to do three things. It has to, number one, have a secular purpose. It has to, uh, it basically has to neither inhibit nor promote religion, and a law cannot in, in, involve a quote-unquote excessive entanglement of religion and, and, uh, and, and government. And that test is notoriously difficult to apply. It's been notoriously open to widely different interpretations. Kind of like substantial burden. Kind of like a substantial <laughs> yeah. burden test. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's just interesting that the court has, you know, it, it, it's constitutional law scholars have noted for years that like the lemon test has been fading um, from reference. And it's interesting in this case that it like, it's all but gone. <laughs> and so it's one of the interesting things to think about is, is, is the lemon test dead, right? I mean, is a case like this signaling to us that the court just really doesn't care about lemon anymore. Yeah. And kind of adding to all this, which is, which is great. So the other notable, so yeah, so you have lemon sort of been fading and this is just a continuation of that, right? The, the majority opinion doesn't even reference lemon, but the other notable absence is that majority opinion doesn't mention Smith. Mm, yes, weird. absolutely. Yep. Even though this case is in keeping with Smith. So uh, let me back up. So, so basically there's a landmark decision in, um, in sort of free exercise jurisprudence, um, Oregon v. Smith, 1990. Um, and, and some of you may have even heard of this case just out there, right? So it's a very famous case in which the court held that the state could deny unemployment benefits to a person fired for violating a state prohibition uh, against the use of peyote, right? Which is um, sort of a, a controlled substance, a drug that is used in certain sort of uh, rituals of Native Americans in their in their rituals, right? So, so as and basically what you have, and Scalia wrote the um, the majority opinion in this case. Basically, and this is kind of when lemons really started getting chipped away, right? Basically, he said that as long as a law is neutral with respect to religion and is sort of generally applicable to all sorts of entities, religious or non-religious, as long as it's neutral, it does not violate the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Basically, because the Oregon law is sort of prohibiting the use of peyote for everybody, not just the Native Americans in their rituals, basically it's neutral with respect to religion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's interesting because that's kind of the logic that Roberts is using in this case, right? He's saying that hey, this constitutional provision is not neutral with, to, with respect to religion, um, and so we're, we're tossing it, right? But it's interesting right. that Smith is never referenced, which is just weird, and I'm not sure why. So Lemon isn't referenced, Smith isn't referenced, and what Roberts uses to sort of, to sort of 
you know, the, the two cases that he talks about the most um, is the, the Trinity Lutheran case, um, which Mick already described, right? So the sort of the religious school wanting to use state funding to repave its playground, right? Very sort of non-religious. Um, but the other case that he refers to is the Locke case. And in this case, what you had is that you have a student that wants to use scholarship money to get a theological degree. Um, so basically in this case, the courts, well, basically the, the stipulation was that the money could be used to, for a person to go to a religious institution, but they can't use it to get theological training. Right. Um, and basically the Supreme court came down on this point. Um, and so what you have is you have this Roberts basically supporting this, this differentiation between religious status and religious use. So you can't discriminate against the use of money based on the status of an institution, whether or not it's religious, but you can right. discriminate based off of whether that money is you has a religious use, right? Mm -hmm. Now Gorsuch basically comes in and says you can't, you know, trying to parse the distinction between those two is is not something the court can do, right? That right. that's not a helpful or useful distinction. What's weird. And so, so you have two different cases. You have, you have the Locke case and the Trinity Lutheran case. What's weird is that Roberts basically says that um, the Espinoza case is more like the Trinity Lutheran case than the Locke case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which yeah. is really strange um, because what you have is you have, you know, you have students going to a religious institution. And that money is used to support the religious institution. And the reason they're going there is because they want to receive basically some theological training, right? So mm -hmm. really, and actually the dissenters point this out, they said, well, they're going to a religious institution. And if you're following the Locke decision, they're receiving theological training, right? And so, so if you apply this sort of status versus use test, if we want to call it that, um, then really you can't, you know, the you can't come down to Espinosa the way you are, mm -hmm. Chief Justice Roberts, right? But Roberts, so basically what Roberts is doing is he's basically um, saying that this is like the Trinity Lutheran case, and they're basically saying that the law case now is has the most narrow possible interpretation, right? It's extremely narrow. So religious use of funds can only mean getting a, th a formal theological degree, right? So he basically has whittled down what the lock precedent is so it's like he it's almost like he wanted to overturn it but he can't overturn it because hey sorry decisis and look at how you sorry decisis in all these other cases yeah. um and this goes back to we, yeah this but, but how can we down lock? right yeah. so it's interesting that he uses he whittles down lock avoids lemon avoids smith and uses the trinity lutheran case um, in a way that um, the dissenters really take him to task for, um, which yeah. I haven't agreed with the dissenters on on that on how he uses um, uses the test on that point. But well, well anyway, it's just a weird case to me. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what the heck to make of it. And I don't know. I mean, the upshot is is pretty clear, right? Protection for religious liberty. You know, yeah. or basically, you know, don't don't come to us to relitigate old issues. Right. But how the court went about sort of yeah. dealing with these past cases is, is very strange to me. So, yeah. And I don't really know what that says about future religious liberty yeah. cases. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like, I don't want to comment really on the court case itself, but it, it, the decision, like the, the distinctions you draw here on the funding, that's really goofy. I mean, we have this here in Minnesota, right. And at Bethel, so I helped schedule mm -hmm. incoming freshmen 
and when they are on PSEO, which is basically funding for high school students from the state to take courses at college, right, um, where the state pays the college, they can come to Bethel Christian University, right, where, you know, we say everything we do is um, infused by our faith. We are, you know, teaching every course from our perspective as Christians, right? They can come to Bethel. They can take courses, but there are certain courses that the state will not pay for, right? You cannot take Intro to Bible, which is a classic freshman course, right? Um, you can't take, I believe, Christianity and Western culture. We don't get paid, I know, for uh, putting them in Western humanity and Christian perspective, right? Because those have Christian in the title. But if they take a course, so they can't take, like, you know, humanities with me and get paid by the state because that's Christian, but they can come over and take my Introduction to Comparative Politics course, right? Um, or my African politics course, which I had, you know, students do both both of those last year as PSDOs, not by the same person, um, same perspective, um, but because it doesn't have the word Christian in it, the state will pay for that, right? So the distinction gets really, really yeah. strange, especially when you think about the whole point of coming to a school like Bethel is I want a certain kind of education, mm -hmm. an education um, as a Christian from Christians, right? So it's, it, is a, it is a very strange distinction we draw, I think. Yeah, well, just to say, I, 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 I do think, you know, as Chris pointed out, I, th I think this does get back to Roberts's view of what stare decisis is and this sort of very slow incremental thing. But I also think, um, you know, in thinking in thinking about these these sorts of distinctions, I think part of what the part of what Roberts is trying to say and part of what Roberts is getting at is he really wants to. Um, I think I think what he is trying to do essentially is whittle away at the at this more expansive view of the establishment clause. Um, I think Roberts's overall goal ultimately is to um, you know very much restrict it. And if and, you know Thomas has uh, Justice Thomas has this very long or fairly long um, concurrence in which he basically argues. Um, that everything the court has done on the establishment clause, basically for the last hundred years, is garbage. Um, <laughs> and so, if you want to, if you want to see an argument yeah, nice. that basically, you know, that, that, that basically argues that Thomas has done it for you, there you go. Wow. Um, and, and I actually think, in many ways, I think Roberts actually doesn't disagree with that. Mm -hmm. I think, I think, in many ways, if you, you know, what Roberts is sort of telescoping and signaling is that, uh, you know, he also. And again, just as as Matt pointed out, I mean, he's he's not sort of referencing back to some of these major landmark decisions that, at least in principle, are the guiding precedents. Yeah. Um, and instead, he's relying on these much more narrow um, precedents that are that are sort of incrementally moving the court in a different direction. Um, and and again, I think you know, to anyone who's I think what Roberts is signaling by that is essentially to anyone who is who is trying to be an activist <laughs> and guide the court in these directions, you know, you need to think in that way. Like that's how you need to think about these sorts yep. of issues if they're going to get past uh, get past Roberts. Um, and uh, it'll be it's so yeah. I, I think um, I think this particular case raises all sorts of weird things. I mean, the other weird thing is too is just. Uh, yeah, I think we already mentioned it, but uh, but I'll just mention it again. It's just to say that like the court is essentially, in some sense, requiring the state of Montana to like reinstate this program that their Supreme Court had basically said that they didn't want to do. So it's kind of the Supreme Court ordering the restart of a program that has been officially discontinued. Now their justification is, you know, well the legislature didn't discontinue it, but it's still kind of weird. I mean, just this sort of that is um, strange. 
intervention in, in sort of like what we might think of as, as an otherwise sort of a state's state's issue. But yeah, and well, that's and Thomas kind of wants to take all that off the table. Right. Yeah. Um, as you said, I mean, he says, you know, whatever you make of this, um, he basically says, you know, if you look back at the establishment clause, you know, like all of the Bill of Rights. Right. This is in the First Amendment. Like all of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to U.S. Constitution was originally applicable only to the federal government. Notice right. in the First Amendment, you see the phrase Congress shall make no law respecting dot, dot, dot. Right. right. Um, right. And we have a long history in the United States, mainly in 20th century, of basically applying the Bill of Rights, making them applicable to state governments. The right. original idea behind the Establishment Clause is that in the United States, a lot of the states originally had established religions. Oh, yeah. There was concern that the federal government would try to establish religion for the whole country, right? Superseding their choices. Right, exactly. Um, and you know, right. religious liberty was again one of the sort of the big one of the big reasons why you know yeah. people came to the United States and set up colonies and they would set up their own sort of state churches, right? And basically, Congress is not is, shall not weigh in into the establishment of religion, but hey, states can do that if they want. We're leaving that open to the states. Um, but basically, the jurisprudence recently has basically said, well, now the states cannot establish a religion. And Thomas is saying, you know, being the true originalist here is saying like, hey, <laughs> we need to go back to the way it originally was. Federal government can establish a religion, but states can do whatever they want. You know, they can make laws with respect to religion the way they want. Of course, the tension here, um, and maybe where you could disagree with Thomas, is perhaps by allowing states to establish whatever religious laws they want, um, that could run afoul of sort of the free exercise clause, which yeah. has also been sort of applied to the states as well. And that gets back to sort of that tension between these two clauses that Mitch was talking about earlier. I mean, well, and I think as far as as far as the originalism issue too goes, I mean that this also brings in the issue of the Fourteenth Amendment. I mean, the Fourteenth yeah. Amendment. Well, is, yeah. um, you know, there, there's this. A strong argument to make that the 14th amendment applies the the bill of rights at least in some form to the states i disagree but in that sense i think um and, and i think particularly with roberts i mean roberts is interesting in that he does harken back to he's like look there are plenty of historical cases where um you know the the government has inadvertently in a sense like aided religious organizations through funds and stuff like that and he cites a number of instances from the 18th and 19th centuries where this where this happened um and he says that wasn't a problem and so we shouldn't think it's a problem either and so he's he's basically indicating that you know in that sense i think he sort of agrees with thomas that this shouldn't be an issue but i think he feels like we can do that within the basic understanding of the bill of rights as it as it already is, and even incorporated onto the states, um, and and I also think, I mean, one of the one of the things to note here too is, and this I get, you know, sort of, uh, I'll just I'll just push back very briefly on this idea of the true originalist, and that is <laughs> that uh, you know there are at least at least three different understandings of what originalism is, and I do think we see those those in play here. I mean. Um, for Justice Roberts, his understanding of originalism is very much grounded in, in basically the role of the court. Um, mm -hmm. So he's very much looking to what was the, and he actually does this. If you look at particularly, um, again, going back to the June Medical um, Society's case, he actually specifically goes through and looks at the Federalist Papers. He actually cites Edmund Burke. He cites uh, William Blackstone. He goes through and he actually like has this litany of people describing like what is the original intent and understanding of what the court is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so his originalism is really grounded in some ways on that. Whereas 
um, Justice Alito um, <clears throat> is a little bit more somebody who wants to say originalism has to do with not only uh, you know the, the meaning of the words themselves, but also it's a, he's actually I think to some degree goes along with uh, uh, Judge Bork. Uh, in saying that the morality of the people who are alive at the time also ought to play a role in thinking about it. Um, and I think you can see that reverberating in a lot of Alito's um, dissents, this this more moral understanding of, of originalism. Um, and then you have more of the Gorsuch understanding, um, which I think is a little bit more of the, um, in some ways I think actually is a little bit more even faithful to Scalia. Um, Scalia himself was actually pretty uh, adamant that you don't try to understand the original intention and motives of the people who adopted particular laws and bills. Um, you just try to understand what was the meaning of the words at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so, 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 so with that said, you know, I think Roberts, you know, is, is he originalist in the same sense that Scalia and perhaps Bork would have looked at it? I probably not. <laughs> um, but I think he still has an argument to make that he has, you know, an originalist uh, understanding in, in that sense. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's where he's really prioritizing originalism with respect to the role of the courts. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's why you see interesting things um, like in, you know, um, the Affordable Health Care Act, um, yeah. in which, you know, basically the case, you know, the individual mandate of the Affordable Health Care Act, you know, wound its way up to the Supreme Court. And Roberts basically found um, a very creative way, but basically found a way to basically prevent the majority from striking it down. So he again wrote his own sort of his own opinion on this. And, and in that opinion, he basically said, it is not the job of the Supreme Court to weigh in um, on a matter that is essentially for Congress to decide, right? Now we can debate whether or not um, he has applied that consistently or not. I think there's some some interesting arguments to be made there, but that's kind of the the thing that is sort of oriented sort of his his you know approach to jurisprudence and why you know perhaps he succeeded in angering people on the both the left and the right <laughs> over the past you know over his time as, as chief justice as he's trying to trying to sort of keep the court out of these sort of political matters of course as mitch pointed out um you know some of these decisions um are political any way you slice them, right? Um, right? And so whether or not he's been able to keep the court out of these political, I mean, I don't think he has. I don't think you actually can um, keep the court out of you know politics um, in quite the way that we would hope, given the polarized um, you know way things are and the different you know policy views that the two different sides have and the desired policy outcomes that they want uh, the court to uphold. But at any rate, it seems that Roberts does have this sort of particular sort of um, sort of judicial philosophy in mind. All right. As we begin to wrap up our time here, uh, and we are over time, but I have to throw one more thing out here. We're talking about politics now and, and Roberts' desire to keep the court out of politics and maybe the impossibility of that. I've heard an argument made in a couple of sources, uh, one um, a Christian source and one a secular source, uh, both arguing that this this series of decisions, the things we've been talking about today, the things we talked about last week on issues of religious liberty, on issues of immigration, especially on issues of abortion, that uh, Donald Trump uh, made a case to evangelical Christians uh, to support him, even if they didn't like his behavior, because of what he could do for the court. And what he could do for the court, namely, was Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And having done that, having... Um, 
having given uh, evangelical Christians essentially two justices that they can be very satisfied with, the court still hasn't moved broadly in the direction that evangelical Christians would have hoped for. And so the argument is thus. Evangelical Christians, having seen that Trump's ability to actually shift the court dramatically is limited, are now going to abandon him because um, they recognize that this is uh, that this one sort of tent peg is not sufficient um, for to, to earn their votes. I don't, as you can tell by my phraseology, I'm not convinced I buy that argument. But um, will Donald Trump be penalized for these court decisions come November? I think the short answer is no. Um, I don't. I mean, I think there may be other reasons why some evangelicals may abandon Donald Trump, but um, I don't think they'll abandon him for this. I think his his appointees have been largely where people would want them to be, um, and I think in any, if anything, it makes his argument more str- you know stronger, right? Why you should vote for me again? Breyer's eighty two, Ginsburg's eighty seven, right? Um, you know, I, there's a good chance I get to replace one or both of them. Um, you want me back in there, and then we can get the kind of court we really want, right? So if if that was your voting issue, and that that continues to be your voting issue, you're probably going to pull the lever for Donald Trump again. Yeah. Well, it's not clear to me that even with a another you know, federal society pick uh, by <laughs> Donald Trump, which is what they are. Um, yeah, and yeah, he's filled yeah, the, the yeah. lower courts with a, just loads of oh, them, yeah. over 200. Um, you know, it's not clear that another federal society pick for the Supreme Court of the United States would result in Roe v. Wade being overturned. No. Not uh, it's not really clear to me um, that, you know, maybe Alito would, but and, and Thomas, um, Thomas clearly, uh, but it's not clear to me that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh would be on board with sort of overhauling um, abortion jurisprudence. Maybe they would. It's not clear that they that they would, though. Um, and so even even another sort of um, another Supreme Court you know pick isn't necessarily going to accomplish a, a shift in abortion. And as things currently stand, you know the majority does seem to be coming down with religious liberty rulings that are relatively favorable, maybe not where some people would want. But you know that that's not too bad. And so really, you know the only case we made is you know, is Roe v. Wade can be overturned. I don't even think it would be overturned with an additional SCOTUS pick. And so really the the real question and is you know you know what does the person at in in the White House, what is the effect that that person has on sort of down the ballot races? Mm-hmm. I had a, a person come to me um, a couple of weeks ago say, you know, like, ah, you know, I don't like Trump, but I really like his Supreme Court picks. This was right before, you know, some of the recent rulings. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, you know, I want to say like, hey, look, you know, the Supreme Court picks might get you some preferable policy outcomes, but Donald Trump is a real drag on Republicans down the ballot. Um, especially in these uh, these races for the state legislatures. So going into the Trump presidency, Republicans controlled, you know, conservatives controlled um, a healthy majority of the state legislatures. And it's the state legislatures where most of these really important laws on sort of religion and, and abortion, it's in the state legislatures where these laws are made. And what you've done is you've elected a guy, you know, to the top of the ticket um, that is, that is, an electoral drag on all of these Republicans down the ballot. Um, and at the end of, you know, at the end of the first four years, um, basically you're going to have a lot of these Republicans defeated by Democrats because of their association with 
Donald Trump, um, rightly or wrongly, despite whatever attempts they might make to sort of un unhitch themselves from yep. Donald Trump. Yep. Um, and that's ultimately going to have uh, sort of be a bigger that's going to have a more negative impact sort of on the sort of the pro-life cause um, than, you know, whatever Supreme Court picks that you have. So that's yep. something that I, I like to I like to say in re response to those sorts of those sorts of statements. Yeah, good point. I'm, I'm going to go back to Chris's original question again here and say, I think I think there's sort of a couple of things. I think number one is there's always this question with all voters of like how much they know. And the answer is usually not very much. Less than, less than um, we'd like. Less yeah. than we'd like. And given that voters often know very little, I think the big headlines for this last week or two is that the court has not done what, uh, you know, has been cases for the most part that, that uh, you know, essentially Trump, Trump voters are not going to like. Um, the exception being Espinosa and, and religious liberty. Um, and I think if you have people who are not particularly informed, which we know most voters aren't, um, those headlines, I think, might make a difference. I mean, because, you know, you think about if you're somebody and I think, you know, this election is going to in many ways, as people are already talking about, it's going to the most persuadable, you know, squishy voters seem to be those in the suburbs. And if you're somebody who is, you know, who's, who's, who's basically somebody in those kinds of situations, you're already on the fence about Trump. And, you know, this was the thing that you were kind of banking on. Um, I don't know. This has not been a series of good headlines. And I think especially combined with the fact that there's been a whole series of things that are not good headlines for, um, for President Trump to, to a number of Trump voters. Um, you know, it's not that this one thing might do it, but it might be just one more, you know, if you're talking about sort of like mm -hmm. chipping away at support, I mean, this, this seems like this might be just one more, you know, chink, chink in the wall here, yeah. um, so to speak. Yeah. Wall, yep. wall, wall, wall metaphor used uh, intentionally. Yes, good job. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. Um, Dr. Crumb, so, tear down that wall. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Uh, so, so I don't know. I kind of do wonder if it, if it will have some effect. I, it's probably almost impossible to teach you do public opinion studies and things like that. But, uh, but, but I do wonder if it, it will at least have some mar you know, marginal effect, especially when combined with these other, um, other, other yeah. things. It's true. And even a marginal effect could, you know, bring down Donald Trump because he has absolutely uh -huh. no room for error at this point. Um, if any room at all, <laughs> um, you know, just given where his, his poll numbers are right now, um, you know, he's behind substantially in all of the tipping point States at this point. So he's, yep. he's got no room for error. Um, and, and even if this didn't have an impact, um, the Supreme court decisions didn't draw away support from his base that might be moot anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'm skeptical this I itself is all that important, although I think it could be part of that larger narrative. Um, but I think the, the bigger factors that are dragging him down are just the, you know, the the ongoing crises of, you know, kind of what received crisis in public order, in um, the health crisis, and then, of course, the economy. And so I think yeah, those are going to be the bigger bigger factors. I think his, his loyalists who voted on that issue are probably still going to say, but I'm more likely to get a, a court appointee I like with Trump than I would with Biden. Sure. So, Yep. Well, we're going to have to save uh, a deeper discussion of Trump's poll numbers and uh, and what what the summer is looking like, the summer of, of Trump's discontent uh, until um, our next podcast. Uh, 
And uh, before we go, though, uh, I always want to take one more quick moment. Uh, Mitch, you said before we started recording that this was one of the weirder sessions of the court. Have we explained today why that session was weird? Is this, we chalked this up to Roberts and his particular role in being the chief justice of this court, or is there some other way that this court session has seemed particularly weird? So this session is there. There. So I mean, Roberts himself, obviously, for a number. Of, you know, there's. We've talked about some of the weirdness and the actual decisions themselves, but even just sort of like setting aside all of the jurisprudence, um, this is kind of a weird session period. Um, first of all, the court didn't take as many cases as they usually take. Um, for, you know, basically for the last few decades, the court has had pretty much the ability to choose any cases they want to take. They get to decide their, their docket. Um, and they usually take somewhere between 80 and 100 cases. Um, and that's been the norm for, you know, again, for, for at least, I don't know, at least the last like three or four decades. Um, and this year they only took about 60. And so that's a pretty substantial drop, um, just mm -hmm. in the number of cases. Now, maybe a little of that has to do with the pandemic, but most of the time they've already decided on their cases before this would have happened. So they actually decided to take fewer cases. So in some ways they're sort of like, you know, some of these cases are pretty headliner. I mean, these are big issues that they're taking on. So it's like they took on some big issues, but like fewer things. <laughs> um, so that's kind of weird. And then the other weird thing is the fact that we're still talking about this, and this is July 1st. Yeah. Um, so uh, the court- Meaning the court usually wraps up in June. Yes, and, and oftentimes not, usually they're wrapped up even before kind of the tail end of June. Like they, mm -hmm. they sometimes try to get things wrapped up even by mid-June because as with so many things, as soon as they wrap up, they get to go on vacation. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, basically the court kind of runs on an academic calendar where, you know, they, they, they operate basically from September through June and they take the intervening months off, they're the summer months off. Um, but they're not doing that. I mean, they still have uh, like eight cases pending. And especially when you're thinking about the fact they only took 60 to begin with, I mean, that's a huge number of, a huge percentage of their cases that they yep. still haven't decided. And here we are, end of July. Yep. So yeah. that's just weird. Yeah. And a couple of reasons for that. I mean, as Mitch pointed out, some of these are pretty hefty, right? I mean, when you have one, you know, major case, um, you know, the, the Espinoza case, if I remember correctly, yeah, um, which is, you know, landmark ruling has like seven different opinions in it. Right. You know, that's just take a long time to put all that together. It's just a gigantic PDF, right? It, <laughs> you have those sorts of messy rulings. It just takes time to sort through all that because, yeah. you know, they, they also have to sort through with each other. They have to meet with each other and say like, hey, who's writing what? And, you know, where do I agree with you? Or where do I disagree with you? And so do I have to write my own concurring opinion, my own dissenting opinion? How are we going to parcel this out? So there's that. There's Can't the other thing. Zoom meeting working. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. And then, you know, the other thing is not only do they go on vacations typically over the summer months, but they also go, they travel around the world lecturing, right? Well, that, that ain't going to happen um, this right. year because of COVID. And because most of them are older, that's it's probably doubly a bad idea. And so, so the, uh, the lecture circuit um, is kind of is <laughs> off for this year. And yeah. so they're stuck they're stuck at home anyway, and they had these big cases, and there were delays in the hearing of these cases back in yeah. the spring. And when yep. there's delays in the hearings, um, that just pushes back the whole schedule. And so, um, yeah, so we have a very late sort of um, season, you might say. Yep. Yeah. Extra innings. So. Yeah, the delay, the delay seems less weird to me than the number of cases they took, for sure. Yeah. yeah. You said extra innings, Matt, and so now I want to make a Supreme Court Justice Bobby Bonilla joke. 
Um, <laughs> July 1st, but um, it all together. <laughs> just bring it all together. All right. <laughs> Um, we got to go guys. This has been super fun, <laughs> super insightful. Uh, thanks for helping me understand as a, as a non court watcher, as an international relations guy, thanks for helping me understand some of these decisions. And, um, boy, this is a weird year. And, uh, this underscores in the midst of an election, how important, uh, the underpinnings of the court are to the structuring of our political problems and our political solutions in the United States. Um, uh, as before we sign off, uh, Mitch, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll probably yeah, call upon you again here as we uh, as we cruise closer to the fall. But uh, you can always reach out to all of us at um, electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can also email the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. And please subscribe to the channel. We've got a lot of great things coming on down the pod or down the podcast channel, including uh, Tweet Victory, um, uh, um, Video Store, and uh, and Selection Track Therapies as well, coming uh, down the pipe as well. So uh, please subscribe and, and get all that stuff in your Twitter feed, or your podcast feed. Um, and uh, on behalf of my colleagues here at Belt University and University of South Carolina Aiken, uh, thanks for listening. And until, we hear from you, until you hear from us again, go Royals. Go Royals.